Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Father, we thank you for these truths that we sing of, Lord, that Jesus has paid it all. And God, as we consider all that we pay, he paid, Lord, we're reminded of our debt. We're reminded of our sinfulness. We're reminded of our weakness. We're reminded of our brokenness. God, we're reminded of who we are in our sin. And God, we stand in awe of you because you, God, you considered it a worthy mission to send your son, Lord, as a lamb, to take away the sin of the world. And so, God, we give you all the praise. Thank you for what Jesus has done. And God, I pray as we submit our hearts to you, God, would we be found in a place of humility, being willing, Lord, to see us for as we truly are in all of our brokenness and all of our weakness. Lord, in the struggle that we still endure with our sinfulness, Lord, God, I pray that you'd help us to see ourselves in the light of our sinfulness and therefore to see the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ in our midst. God, thank you for Jesus. I pray that you would draw our hearts to him. And Lord, help us to exalt you as we sit under your word. God, we pray this all in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. So good to worship together this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can open them up to Genesis chapter 27. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the ushers are going to come down the aisle right now. They're going to make their way to the back, and you can stick your hand in the air, and they'd love to put a copy of God's Word into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home. It's our gift to you, and we trust that as you dig into God's Word, you're going to be blessed as He reveals Himself to you. We're going to spend our time this morning in Genesis 27. Before we get there, though, I want to just um, maybe just highlight the work that God is doing in our midst. And I don't say this in any way. hope this doesn't come off boastful. I, I, I say it to highlight the glory of God and the work that he's doing in our midst. And uh, last weekend was incredibly encouraging. If you were here, I trust you were encouraged. It was incred- incredibly encouraging to me and the elders and the staff. It was one of our highest attended Sundays in the history of our church. But more importantly, why it was incredibly encouraging to me was because I got the opportunity to speak with a number of unbelievers. And that really is the mission of our church, is to be a light that is shining in this city and the surrounding area, a light that is shining to the lost. And as I consider why it is that God is working in our midst so that we can be successful in that mission, so that we truly can be a light to the lost, my Mind goes to a problem that Jesus brought up with his disciples in Matthew chapter 9. And this is the problem that Jesus said. Now, by the way, this is the pre-sermon, okay? So this is just free. This is not the sermon, but I just hopefully want to encourage you here. Jesus said this to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And here's a problem that we still are in the midst of today. We are in the midst of a plentiful harvest. There are many who do not know Christ. But there are a few lights that are shining. And so what do we do as a church? What do we do? Listen to what Jesus says. He says, therefore, pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, the only solution to the problem that we find ourselves in is to pray. And one of the things that we have done well as a church over the last year is to come together 
on our worship and prayer nights and to pray. Because there is a great problem. It's a problem too big for us. And so it encourages my heart when as a church we get together and pray. And I want you to know that we're seeing the fruit of that prayer. God is answering our prayers. And I want you, if you don't come out to our worship and prayer night, what I want you to feel right now is like this feeling of FOMO. I'm missing out. The fear of missing out. I'm missing out on the work that God could do through me. I cannot commend this to you enough. We have a saying around here that prayer is to the life of our church like what breathing is to your physical life. We cannot live without prayer. So please, can I beg of you? I'd get on my knees if it wasn't too humiliating. Can I beg of you to take part in the mission that Jesus has called us on? To pray with us in community with us on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. here at Inova. I trust, as the testimony is at week in and week out when we pray, every month when we gather for worship and prayer, God is going to bless us as we do that. Okay, that's the pre-sermon. You guys ready for the real sermon now? Genesis 27. Genesis 27. One of the most shocking things about the ministry of Jesus, and it's a shocking truth that as we consider the life of Jesus today, we still have trouble wrapping our minds around, is the type of people that Jesus spent time with when he came to earth. It's very backwards, isn't it? That as we read of the life of Jesus, we really find him in the most broken of places. I mean, this is the, the, the man who 2,000 years ago, he came and he said, I'm not only the king of Israel. He pointed at every human heart. And this man, Jesus Christ, said, I'm the king of your heart. He said, I'm the king of the universe. Jesus came high and lifted up worthy more than of any other human being of exaltation. And yet, when he came, he was not with the prestigious. He was not with the strong. He was not with the righteous. Instead, he was with the sick. Jesus was with the demon-possessed. Jesus was with the poor. He was with the weak. And it's hard to wrap our minds around this when we truly understand the glory of Christ because we understand the more prestige someone has, the less we expect them to be hanging out with kind of lowly folk, maybe like us. When the queen would come to Canada, none of us would expect a knock on the door and to see the queen there. And yet Jesus comes and he puts himself in the midst of the weakest, most undeserving people. Jesus made it clear that this was his mission, not only in his actions, but also in his words. And so he said to those Pharisees who confronted him about this one day, who said, Jesus, why are you hanging out with these people? Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said his mission was not to come call the righteous, but sinners. And what I want you to see this morning is that the heart of God has always been like this. The heart of God has always been filled with compassion so that the place that you will find God is in the midst of a broken, sinful, unrighteous people. This is where the compassionate heart of God always meets with his people. So understand this is a principle in your life then. The principle in your life is that if you make yourself strong, you will never see God. Pretend to be righteous. Put on the mask of 
Christianity. Speak all of the Christianese, and you will never in that lifestyle have a true and meaningful encounter with God. But the moment in your heart that you begin to exalt in your weakness, that you begin to recognize your brokenness, that you begin to understand your inability, in that moment you will find yourself in the presence of God. This is the reality of who God is. I love how one pastor says it, Dane Ortland. He says this. It's going to come up on the screen. He says, it's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity, that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. And listen, this truth is so important for us to hear because it tells us exactly where God is going to meet us. Do you know where God will meet you this morning? It is in the place of honest recognition of your brokenness. I wonder if, I wonder the condition of your heart as you walked in this morning. You know, I as a human being can't see into the condition of your heart, but God certainly can. And I wonder if you walked in this morning thinking that you needed to really have your act together. Almost as like a charade, like I I better not let anyone see into what's really happening in my heart. And maybe even with your family, you ever have those mornings, if we're honest, we, I have those kind of mornings all the time where you're with your family, you're fighting the whole way. As soon as those doors close, though, and you're walking in the church, everything's happy. You got to put on the mask. You got to put on the facade. I wonder if you walked in this morning discouraged, frustrated, weary. I want you to recognize that it's in the vulnerability of your discouragement and frustration and weariness that God is going to meet you this morning. Maybe you walked in these doors. It was just kind of part of the routine. Like, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. A little harder this morning with the sun shining, the heat. And yet you walked in here because this is routine. You've gone to church your whole life. And underneath the routine, maybe you've walked in here this morning disenchanted. Maybe this has just been a thing you've done your whole life. Maybe... You're even beginning to grow cynical. You feel empty. And I want you to hear this morning that it's in the, in the honesty of those feelings that Jesus will meet you. Maybe you're here and you're just utterly broken. You've struggled with the same sin year in and year out. You feel like you have not changed. You feel like you cannot be transformed. You feel like you should be so much more advanced in the faith. And I want you to know that it is those people, it is those people that when Jesus was here, he met with first. This is so important in the life of our church, isn't it, that we understand this principle, that the compassionate heart of God seeks to meet with weak and broken people because we will die as a church if we pretend to be strong, if we are dishonest about our brokenness. There is no way we can ever thrive because God is in the midst of a broken people. What we're going to see in Genesis 27, I'm going to read it for us in a moment, is a whole number of God's people, all of whom are broken. Not a single person in this story gets it right, but against the backdrop of the brokenness of these people's lives is the plan of God being executed in their midst. It's the same backdrop of our life. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our weakness, God is still relentlessly committed to us. And I want you to see that in Genesis 27 this morning. 
Let me read it for you. We're going to start actually in Genesis 26, verse 34. And if you have a copy of God's word, you can follow along with me. Moses writes this, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I hear your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that, you may, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether or not you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's, his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? 
He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came. And I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As a son, Esau heard the words of his father. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even also me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The day of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. The words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him, stay with him a while while your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paran Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padamaran, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel, of Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from there. That as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. I want you to see in this passage our unescapable brokenness. This is the first thing I want you to see, that our brokenness is unescapable. Now notice the phrasing of this point as I want you to see it in Genesis 27. The, the real key thing here is that you understand that it is unescapable. That each of us, if we were honest with ourselves, as we march through this point, we will see our own brokenness. As we look into the mirror of God's word in Genesis 27... 
what we'll see is not a bunch of screw-ups and broken people of which we could look at and say, oh man, I would do way better than Jacob. I would really trust in God. Instead, what we'll, look, what we'll see as we look into the mirror of Genesis 27 is ourself in all of our brokenness. And this will be incredibly hard for us. As a culture, it's incredibly hard for us, isn't it, to deal with brokenness. That's why at every interview that you have been a part of, anytime you want to get a job, you know what you have to do with brokenness? You got to pick up the rug. You got to sweep that brokenness underneath the rug. That's why even when an interviewer asks you your question, what do you do? A question about your weakness. They say, hey, what are your weaknesses? Well, you turn that into a strength. You say something along the lines of, oh, well, my greatest weakness is that I just care too much sometimes. Sometimes I'm too compassionate and it just gets me into so much trouble. You see, as a culture, we glory in our strength and hide our brokenness. Isn't it true that some of the people that you live closest to on your street, they would look at your life and think that everything is okay? And doesn't that even happen in the church? This place where we come and the acknowledgement, if we're Christians, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, we can even come in this place and start to believe that, like, the person beside you has it all together. Can you just do some preaching for me for a second? Can you turn to your neighbor and say, you're broken? Say, you're broken. Preach it, okay? Preach it. Preach it. Some of the uh, spouses were a little too eager for that one, a little too eager for that one. That's what I want us to see is that each of us are broken because it's only once we understand our unescapable brokenness that we can understand why the gospel is good news. See, some of us, our hearts have grown so dull with the gospel because we've failed to see our brokenness. And of course, the gospel is going to be boring to you if you think that you're perfect, if you think that you constantly walk in strength, if, if the Holy Spirit, by his grace and mercy, hasn't convicted you of your sin, of course, you're going to hear the gospel and say, oh, oh, well. Of course, your heart's never going to be set aflame with a passion for the glory of God because you can't see your own brokenness. See, Jesus' medicine is for the sick. And it was them that he sought. And today, this morning, it's the sick that he seeks. It's the broken that he seeks. And so I want you to see our brokenness in this passage. I want you to see the redemptive will of God working in the midst of a broken people. The first way that we are broken, I want you to see in this passage, is, is that our desires are broken. We as a people have broken desires. In our desires, we are broken in every way. And we see this really from the very beginning of Chapter 27. We see this in the life of Isaac. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 27, we're told that Isaac was old. Don't you love how straight up Scripture is? Isaac is old. And one of the ways they knew is that his eyes were growing dim so that he could not see. And the sense that we get as we march through this passage is, is not only that Isaac is physically blind, but also that this blindness is, is pointing to a sign of spiritual blindness that Isaac has. That Isaac, with the eyes of his heart, cannot really see what he truly, actually needs. See, what we find in Isaac's life is that he's blind to the plan of God and the way that God wants to work through Jacob. You'll remember, if you were with us when we were in Genesis 25, that God had told Isaac exactly what he was going to do. Do you remember that? In Genesis 25, 
Isaac was told that, or sorry, Rebecca was told along with Isaac that there were two nations in her womb. God said, two peoples from within you shall be divided. But listen to what God said. The, the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. From the very beginning, before of all of Jacob's deceit, God said that his plan was to work through Jacob. So Isaac then, by setting his heart on Esau, set his heart on the wrong son. God had clearly told him who he was going to work through, and yet here is Isaac desiring to give the blessing to Esau. We saw it from the very beginning in Genesis 25, 28. This is what we were told. We were told that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. So instead then of Isaac delighting in the plan of God, instead of Isaac hearing God's plan and then saying, okay, God, I'm on board, let's do this, Isaac's heart is drawn a different way. His desires go the opposite way of God's desires. God desires to bless Jacob. Isaac desires to bless Esau. And so the question is why? And I want you to see it's because of Isaac's broken desires. Why does Isaac love Esau? Well, we're told time and time again, we read it there in Genesis 25, that Esau loved the food, that, sorry, that Isaac loved the food that Esau could make. This is the power of food. And here in Genesis 27, you get this sense that, that by, by everyone around Isaac knows that he is blinded by this love for food. Three times it comes up. Look at verse 4, where Isaac tells Esau, prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Look at verse 7, bring me game. This is Rebecca now talking to Jacob. Bring me game, prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Look at verse 9, where Rebecca again says, go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. Look at verse 17. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared in the hand of her son Jacob. Everyone around Isaac knows that he desires food too greatly. Though he had clearly heard God's plan to work through Jacob, it is his love for food that leads him astray. And we look at Isaac and you say, how could you be so ridiculous? So that the love of a thing of this world would cause you to disobey God and not desire his plan to be fulfilled. And yet, as we look at ourselves, we see those same broken desires, don't we? See, instead of desiring the will of the Lord to be accomplished in our life, each of us, at times, if not now, each of us have desired our will to be done. Each of us have sought our own desires, our, the fulfillment of our own satisfaction. See, this is the reality of our brokenness. Now, I want you to understand that our brokenness is the nature that we have broken desires. But the problem here is not with desire itself. There's a whole worldview, in fact, a whole religion founded on this kind of idea that desire in and of itself is bad. If you were to talk to a Buddhist, the aim of the Buddhist is to release themselves from what they would say the slavery of desire. 
What the Buddhist wants is to desire absolutely nothing. And they think that true joy, that true satisfaction will come from separating yourself from the desire of anything. That, well, that's kind of like an Eastern religion. The Western version of that is found in minimalism. Minimalism says that I'll find the greatest joy once I separate myself from everything. Once I don't have any desires, once I don't desire anything, then I'll truly be happy. The, pro- the reason why I'm so sad, the reason why I'm depressed, is because I just have so many things. And I want you to understand that our problem is not that we have desires in and of itself. Our problem is that our desires are broken. Our problem is that instead of desiring the things that we should desire, we desire the things that lead to death. You remember Adam and Eve? They had two options. They could eat of every tree and delight in obedience to God. Or they could eat of a tree of which they were promised one thing, and that was death. If I offered you all the food in the world, and then I also offered you a drink of poison, and you desired the drink of poison instead of all the food of the world, people would look at you and say something is broken. Their desires are faulty. And so it is with us. It's the same thing. We desire things that are not of God. We desire things that lead to our very death. The requirement of us then is to come to God in humility and ask God to shape our desires, knowing that our hearts are broken, knowing that we are attracted to these things that lead to our death and not then attracted to the things that lead to life. I was reading my personal Bible reading this morning, and, or sorry, this, this week in Psalm 63, and the psalmist had come to understand this. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm 63. See, the psalmist understood that his desires had to be for God. This is going to come up on the screen, Psalm, Psalm 63. It's going to come up right now. Here we go. Okay, so here's what the psalmist says. It says, so I will bless you as long as I live. I think this is like the fourth verse or something. Are these out of order? All right, well, let me read it for you and maybe he can follow along. Here we go. Oh my God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Here's what the psalmist recognizes in this first verse. There is nothing that can satisfy apart from God. So look what he does. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. The psalmist has woken up, and you know what he said? Today, I'm going to live for the praise and glory and blessing of God. I'm going to live to praise him. My sole desire is going to be his blessing. My sole desire is going to be his praise. So then look what he understands will happen in this last verse. The psalmist says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You know what the psalmist comes to realize? That his soul is created for one food alone. There is only one spiritual food which will bring satisfaction to his soul. And that spiritual food is to, do, is to praise the Lord. We get the illustration, don't we? We know physically what food is satisfying like that. Like when the psalmist says this morning that if he praises God, his soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. 
Each of you can think about what kind of food that is. For me, that's like a freshly baked chocolate chip cookie. Can we just take a moment? We do this all the time because I just love cookies. But can we just take a moment to delight in the glory of like, I'm talking not like one of those like Chips Ahoy, okay? Not, we're not talking that. I'm talking like a freshly baked chocolate chip cookie. When it comes out of the oven and it's cooled down for like seven and a half minutes, the perfect amount of time, and you bite into it, and the outside, there's the crunch, but then the inside, there's like the goo. Like it's not really cooked enough, and you're probably going to get sick, but it's so glorious, isn't it? And it just melts in your mouth. This fat and rich, satisfying food. Well, what the psalmist understands is that your soul is created for that same kind of spiritual satisfaction. That when you wake up every day and you make it your aim to praise God, your soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. This is the only way to find satisfaction. It's so backwards. Because what the world says is you got to focus more on yourself. Take some more me time. And the Bible says... You focus on God. You make everything about God. And when you do that, you find the one thing that your soul can truly be satisfied. This is the food of every human soul to praise the Lord. What does that look like in your life? Well, it means this. Every day you wake up, you say, how can I live today to praise God? How can I work in a way that's going to bring praise and glory to God? How can I love my family in a way that's going to bring praise and glory to God? In everything, we seek to bring praise and glory to God. And when you do this, you'll find the deepest satisfaction. The problem is that our our desires are broken. It's not only our desires that are broken. The next thing I want you to see in this text is that our motives are broken. See, it's possible to do the right thing but have the wrong motives, isn't it? That's what we see in Rachel's life. Remember in Genesis 25, we were told that Rachel's heart was with Isaac. Sorry, was with Jacob. Well, well, Isaac loved Esau. Rachel loved Jacob. And yet, as we read through this text, we get no indication that Rachel has the right motive at all. There's not even a mention of God in this text. See, Rachel's desire is not to give God glory, not to praise God. Rachel's desire and motivation for Jacob to get the blessing really comes from just this personal love that she has for Jacob. Now remember that this was the same woman that in Genesis 25, when she was barren, and when she noticed Jacob and Esau were wrestling in her womb, she cried out to God. See, Rachel began her life depending on the Lord, but she had come to this point and she no longer cared about depending on the Lord. She no longer walked in the Lord's strength. She no longer turned to the Lord. See, what Rachel should have done is when when she saw Isaac wanting to give the blessing to the wrong son, Rachel should have turned to the Lord. The Lord had already delivered her when she was pregnant with her two sons. The Lord would deliver her again. Instead, Rachel turns to her own way. Rachel turns to deceit. This is the danger of Christianity, isn't it? It's very possible for us to do all the right things and yet have in our hearts the wrong motives. We can align our lives on the outside to make it look like we're living uprightly, 
and yet on the inside have all the wrong desires. See, it may be possible that from the outside, it looks like you do all the right things, but you have all the wrong motivations. This is why I find one of the scariest stories in Scripture is of the people who come to Jesus on the last day and they say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do like all these mighty works in your name? Lord, we did it. We did the Christian things. And then what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. See, these people, they had their act together, but they never really knew the Lord. They did all the right things. They even did amazing things, but their heart was never for the Lord. They did these things from a self-centered heart rather than a God-centered motivation. One of the ways I see this alive in our church today is in the lives of young people. If you're a teenager here and a young adult maybe, I just have a special word for you right now. That you are in a time in your life where it can be very advantageous to you to live for Christ. Why is that? Well, it's because your parents likely love the Lord. And you can learn, kind of learn how to cheat the system, can't you? Like if you come down in the morning, I hope I'm not giving you any ammunition here. If you come down in the morning and say, hey, mom, this morning I was reading the Bible and I was praying. I was doing it for like an hour and a half, just weeping before the Lord. Your mom is going to be so happy. Your dad is going to be so happy that you're following the Lord. See, right now it's kind of advantageous for you to be a Christian, isn't it? It's advantageous for you to take steps of faith. And yet there's a day coming very soon where you will realize that in our culture, it is not advantageous. You'll realize that in our culture, you'll actually lose much because you decided to follow Christ. There will be jobs you're not able to get. There will be people who look down on you because of the things that you believe. And the question for you is, what is your motivation? Do you truly love the Lord? Now, parents, let me speak to you. The most important thing for your children is not just that they do the right things. We are not looking for behavior management here. The most important thing is that your children have a heart that is set on the Lord. The most important thing is that you, as their parent, you shepherd their heart. That doesn't mean you ignore the behavior. It just means that you need to get a level deeper than the behavior. You need to get to the heart. And you need to apply the gospel to these kids hearts. We're aiming for motivation here. Not just that they do the right things, not just that they're in the right places, but that they believe the right things, that they love the right things. Because we're broken in our motives. I want you to see next our unescapable, the unescapable brokenness of our actions. See, Isaac shows us the brokenness of our desires. Rebecca shows us the brokenness of our motives. And what Jacob shows us is the brokenness of our actions. Well, Rebecca had crafted the plan and did all the work in the, ba- in the background, Jacob is the one who carries it out. So that we read in verse 14 that Jacob, he went and he took and he brought them to his mother. Jacob is the one who's carrying out this deceitful plan. Jacob is the one whose actions are ultimately deceitful. And the further we get down in the text, the more and more deceit Jacob is getting himself into. This is a path that Jacob walks down that every step he takes gets more and more deceitful. It gets worse and worse for Jacob. And so it is in our life. Every time we choose to disobey God, we get deeper and deeper. It pulls us deeper. Sin grows its roots deeper into our heart. 
just as it does with Jacob. So then in verse 18, as he goes into his, in with his father, look what he says to Isaac. He calls Isaac, my father. You'll remember that these words, my father, the same word in the Hebrew, means very much to Isaac. So Isaac, as he hears those words, I imagine that his mind would go back to Mount Moriah when he was there with his father and and Isaac went up the mountain with Abraham and he called him as these exact same words, my father. And as Isaac hears these words from Jacob, he remembers the way that he had trusted Abraham. And now Jacob comes using these words to mislead Isaac. And instead of showing his trust and devotion, Jacob uses these words to betray the trust of his father. But notice then in verse 19 what Jacob says to his father. He said to him, I am Esau, your firstborn. Not only is this a lie, it's really a double lie. Remember what Jacob had just done in the last chapter. Do you remember what Jacob did with Esau? He stole his birthright. So that now, like, Jacob's even pretending that Esau still has this birthright, that, that Esau still has the firstborn privilege. Now, in verse 20, we see Isaac sorting out the confusion, asking Jacob how he could find food so quickly. And here, Jacob is even willing to go so far as to invoke the name of the Lord in his deceit. He says, because the Lord your God granted me success. Now, it's interesting here. Notice as Isaac becomes increasingly suspicious, Jacob becomes increasingly quiet. It's like the parent who has their kid pinned. You know, you're starting to piece together maybe the disobedience that they have, and they kind of just become more and more quiet. Jacob was, began speaking in this long, flowery language, and, and as soon as Isaac begins to, un, begins to know that Jacob is deceiving him, his words become few. These actions of Jacob ultimately remind us of our brokenness. See, it's not only our inward heart motives and desires that are broken— it's also true of our actions. We look back on our life and all of us, if we're honest, can see ways that we have acted in a way that dis dishonored the Lord. And as I consider the brokenness of the very things that we do, I wonder if some of you this morning have walked in with the weight of your sin on your shoulders. Maybe you look back on your life and you think, man, if I was just, you know, a better parent, maybe my kids would be in a different place. Maybe you look at your life and there's sin that is so deeply rooted in your heart. You just feel like, man, if I had dealt with this years ago, I would be in such a different position. I wouldn't be dealing with this sin. And you look back on your life and you look back on the way that you have acted, the way that you've sinned against God, and you're filled with regret, with ways that you could have done things better, obeyed God more clearly. And I want you to see this in the weight of your brokenness and the weariness of your struggle that Jacob is the one that God has chosen. Jacob's the one that God's chosen. You may walk in here with all sorts of regret, with all sorts of brokenness as you understand the ways that you've acted. And yet the word that God has for you is that it is in that position that he meets you. It's those people he came for. Jesus, he came for the sinful. He came for the unrighteous. He came to die for the ungodly. 
And so it's when you recognize your ungodliness, it's when you bear the weight of your unrighteousness that truly you can see Jesus for all his worth. If you walk in here thinking that you're perfect, you'll miss Jesus. That's what the Pharisees did. Pharisees had their lives together. Pharisees couldn't see their own sinfulness. This is why I love, I hear it all the time, people say, you know, I've got such a boring testimony. I just grew up in a, you know, in a Christian family. I was born in the pew. I always believed in God. And I love those testimonies. Because you know how easy it is, if you grow up in a Christian house, you know how easy it is to fake Christianity? Like you confess your sin and the worst thing you can think of is like one time I thought about swearing. Like you don't have like any, any deep and obvious sin to confess. And it can be very easy for you. If you grow up in that, it can be very easy for you just to think that you're a good person. You don't really need Jesus. It can be very easy for you just to live a moral life. It can be very easy for you to miss God. Remember, in the story of the prodigal son, who's the one who ultimately misses the love of the father? It's the older son. It's the older son who never really leaves the house who doesn't experience the low rock bottom of the prodigal son. It's the prodigal son who sees the love of the father. It's the older son who has his life together that misses it. And so you need to understand God's grace in your life. If you have a testimony that you were born into a Christian home and at some point you were convicted of your sin and were a place where you were brought to tears because of what you've done and you see Jesus as your savior, you need to praise God. God has saved you from the blindness that many Many experience not, be, not believing that they are sinners. See, Jesus, he came for the ungodly. He came for those whose actions were broken. And the last thing I want you to see is the brokenness of our response. It's pretty dramatic when Esau comes in. He just misses Isaac. It's almost as though they walk through the same doorway. As Isaac leaves with the blessing, Esau's coming in to receive the blessing that had already been given to his father. And as we work through this text, we read, it's, it's really heartbreaking, isn't it? When Esau discovers his, the way that Jacob had stolen the blessing, he cries out in verse 34 with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And you get the sense of Esau, he, he's truly been cheated. Jacob's name as the one who grabs the heel, the one who struggles in order to advance his position, has truly come to fulfillment. Two times Esau has been cheated by Jacob, we truly understand the suffering that Esau has faced. His blessing has been taken from him. The thing that was rightly his has been stolen from him. All his life, Jacob has taken everything good from Esau. Esau has truly suffered here. And yet what we see is that even though he's genuinely been cheated, even though he is genuinely suffering, even though he's really in a painful position, his response is broken. So that instead of seeking the Lord, he seeks revenge. With great weight, he says he will kill his brother Jacob. And Rebecca believes that maybe Esau will chill out after a few months, and yet he doesn't. We find, as we read through the story of Jacob and Esau, that Esau is bloodthirsty for revenge. See, this reminds us, in the world we live, we're, we're going to face hardship. This is a reality of humanity, isn't it? If you haven't just suffered, if you're not suffering now, be warned, you're probably about to suffer. That's the nature of what it means to be human, isn't it? That we suffer under the evil of this world. 
And yet the question is not, will you suffer? The question really is, how will you respond to the suffering that you endure? And Jacob reminds, sorry, Esau reminds us that our unescapable brokenness reveals its ugly face when we respond wrongly to the suffering that we endure. See, Esau is unwilling throughout his life to submit to the glorious plan of God. When Esau heard that God was going to give the blessing to Jacob, he should have thrown his hands up and said, God, I mean, I don't understand why, but I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to trust that your way is better than my way. Instead, the way that Esau responds is the way that so many of us respond. Instead, he says, no, no matter what, I'm going to get my way. If I have to kill my own brother, if I have to kill Jacob, I'm going to get my way. I'm going to get my birthright back. I'm going to get my blessing back. See, Esau's mentality is this my will mentality. No matter what happens, I'm going to work out my will. And the reality for each of us is that we at times respond to suffering that way. See, suffering is when our life is completely out of control and things are happening that we would never plan for ourselves. Isn't that kind of a good definition of suffering? Like no one has ever suffered in their life and said, oh, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. This sickness is exactly what I wanted. Instead, suffering happens when the plan that we had for life takes this diversion. And all of a sudden, we're at a crossroads where we have to decide, are we going to rest in the will that God has for our life and the way that he's working things out? Or are we going to fight in order to get it our way? This is what we see in the life of Esau, that he fought to get his own way. Notice how that compares to Jesus. See, Jesus, like Esau, like us, faced suffering. He faced unfair punishment. And yet in the garden, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is not committed to his own way. He's not committed to his own will. He's committed to God's will. What's our point here? Our point here is to highlight our unescapable brokenness. And I hope by this point in the message you feel this weight. Feel this weight of brokenness. You feel this weakness. That as a child of God, you have failed. And in many ways, unless God were relentlessly committed to you, you would be too broken to be used by him. And yet what we find is this. And I want you to see this quickly, that God is relentlessly committed to us and our brokenness. See, against the backdrop of this story has been God's relentless commitment to his people. God promised to bless Jacob, and he would even use the wicked actions of his children so that Jacob would get that blessing. And in chapters 28, what we see is, is that God is committed God is committed to preserving his people. Why? Because from the very beginning, you remember Genesis 3.15, God promised that a Savior would come. God promised that through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Eve, through this family of Adam and Eve, he would provide a Savior, one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so all throughout Genesis, the storyline is this. How is God going to do that? And you feel the tension when Rebecca says to Isaac in verse 46, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman, because Esau has abandoned God's plan. And now all of salvation depends on Jacob. Jacob needs to marry someone from the line that God has chosen. And if he doesn't, there's no salvation. And God is relentlessly committed to his people so that no matter how sinful Jacob is, as God has chosen to bless him, he will preserve the line so that someday, it's clearly not Jacob, 
but one will come in the line of Jacob who will be the savior of God's people. See, the plan of God, it won't fail. The plan of God is to deliver Jesus into the midst of our brokenness. What Jacob reminds us is that salvation cannot come through him. He's too broken. It must come through someone else. And as we look back on the story of Jacob, we see Jesus in every way. You see, God was relentlessly committed to Jacob and his family through his deceit. I wonder if your response to that is, well, so what? So what that thousands and thousands of years ago, God was committed to this family? Well, the so what is that God has proven his commitment to you. How has he done it? He has done it from from the line of Jacob. He has provided for you a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, in every way he proved his commitment to you. Jesus came and he drew near to the weak. So in Hebrews 4.15, it says these words, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If you put that in the positive, think about it. Jesus is able to sympathize with you in your weaknesses. Church, what is it that Jesus sympathizes with you in? What is it that causes Jesus to wrap his arms around you and say, I got you, I'm with you. It's not your strength. It's not when you have everything together. It's your weakness. Jesus sympathizes with you, not when you're perfect. Jesus sympathizes with you when you recognize your weakness. So that the writer of Hebrews says in verse 16, let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When are you going to meet with Jesus? It's when you recognize your need for him. It's when you recognize your weakness. That's when Jesus comes to you. See, Jesus draws near to you in your weakness. Jesus has compassion for you in your brokenness. You come in here with the weight of your brokenness. You feel like you've just messed up so many ways, so many times, in such significant ways, and it's for you in that place of brokenness that Jesus came. He proved it in his life. He was with the sinful. He was with the broken. He was with the unrighteous. And he came and he called the broken to him that they may find rest in him. You know, the story of Jacob, what does it really prove to us? It proves that God's relentlessly committed to a broken people, isn't it? Jacob is not the story of a person who had his life to get all together and God took and said, okay, because your life is all together, I can use you. Jacob is the story of a man who fails time and time again. It's like you cannot write a worse biography for Jacob. He is such a mess up. He's so deceitful. He's so sinful. And yet, Jacob will be the one through whom God works and ultimately delivers us Jesus. And what is it teaching us as a church? It's teaching us that God gets glory when he takes people's lives who are ultimately so messed up and he transforms them from one degree of glory to another until they increasingly look like Jesus Christ. Christian, you look at your life, you feel like you've got nothing together. God looks at your life and he says, I'm ready to transform you so long as you are ready to acknowledge your weakness and lean into me, then I will meet you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. God, thank you for the love that you have displayed to us that we only see when we look to Jesus. Or there you proved as Christ died for the ungodly, as he died for the unrighteous, Lord, there you proved that you loved us to such a degree that no amount of sin could keep us from, sorry, could keep you from sending your son to deliver 
and to save us. And God, I pray by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit right now that many who are discouraged, many who are disenchanted with you, who feel weak, who, who understand their brokenness, Lord, I pray that right now, even in this moment, as we respond to you in song, God, they would find that you are the God who meets them in that place and desires to grow them, transform them, and to receive all the glory for the work that you do in their lives. So God, we give you all the praise. And we pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen.